You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. When I'm bad, I'm better. He's a liar! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. This has been a super weird one for LA. I actually hailed so hard on my way to work on Wednesday that my windshield looked like it had been in a snowstorm. And also I'm getting very tired of this streak of actual weather we've been having in general. It's been raining for like over a day straight. Um, Hopefully it's not picking up in the microphone too bad because I do record by windows because that's dumb. But you know, studio apartment, not a lot of room. And like, I know some of you actually have like real weather and I like grew up somewhere where one year we had rain so bad it actually like disconnected a bridge. But I've lived in L.A. for almost 13 years now and I've gotten very desensitized to the idea of like rain and cold and I miss I miss the sun. (laughs) But yeah. I'm incredibly cold and I don't like being rained on and I am over this and I think it's going on for like another three days. So yikes. No official movie theater movie reviews this week as I only saw Cocaine Bear, which is a work movie. But if you'd like some unhinged chaotic fun, that's definitely the film for you. This week, we're covering the job of acting. And guess what, guys? Turns out it's a whole lot more than just memorizing a bunch of lines. We're going to go into acting's history, some of the major ways actors might prepare for a role, how an actor might do their job, and of course, how one might achieve getting this job. Acting is also a bit of a cultural thing. Different cultures have different, and different countries have different methods for acting. So for the sake of this episode, we're focusing more on the Western styles of performing, just as an FYI. They're all very similar, but there are nuances between them for obvious reasons. So just as a heads up, that's what's going on today. And with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I mean, I'm guessing y'all know what acting is, but I'm a creature of habit when possible. So, definition time. Acting in its most basic form is the performing art in which movement, gesture, and intonation are used to create a fictional character for a performance. With that in mind, it's now time for your quick history lesson on how acting developed overall. Of course, there are other lenses to look at how acting developed and shaped not only the world, but entertainment. For example, how a movie star's popularity drove ticket sales and created the modern idea of celebrity. And of course, how they were treated throughout the history of the entertainment industry. But this episode is just focusing on the development of the craft of acting and how it shifted over actual millennia. 
The art of acting predates film by a millennia, with one of the first known actors being the ancient Greek Thespis of Icaria. Was he actually the first actor? Probably not. But this is the name who we get the term thespian from, and it's the most popular theory, so we're going with it. This credit was given to Thespis by Aristotle in his Poetics around 335 BCE, 200 years after Thespis's time. In it, Aristotle claims that Thespis was the first performer to step away from the choruses of the day and become a solo character. Before Thespis, a chorus narrated stories that had been passed down for generations from a third-person perspective. For example, so-and-so did such-and-such. But when Thespis stepped out from the chorus, as the legend goes, he spoke as if he were the character. For example, I did such-and-such. This distinction between the two potentially made him the first actor. A few centuries later, theater became more formalized when the plays of the oral traditions began being written down. Also at this stage, and for centuries, at least in the majority of the Western world, it was a males-only profession. When the Romans essentially conquered the world a few centuries later, they took the theater and shifted it to fit the Roman desires of the day. These plays often spoke to the modern society and were often quite crude in nature. After the fall of Rome in 476 CE, theater would stagnate for nearly a thousand years, but was kept alive in amateur productions and morality plays put on by the Catholic Church. The Italian Renaissance saw the rise of a new form of theater known as the Commedia dell'arte, which was the first new form of theater in nearly a millennia. It began in the 1500s in Venice and featured actors performing as characters from all walks of life versus, you know, the higher echelons of society. Modern improvisational actors, meaning actors who make things up on the fly, more or less, can trace their origins back to this movement of acting more directly than maybe a more mod- uh, just a regular actor, for lack of a better term. As Commedia dell'arte relied on coming up with things on the fly, stock characters and situations, and self-editing. Examples of stock characters from this time included The Servant, The Harlequin, which was a version of The Service but more of a clown, The Old Man, and The Nobility. Italians, for what it's worth, also allowed women to perform. Commedia dell'arte spread across Europe, with each culture taking in certain parts of the art form and making it their own. They would just emphasize maybe one more on the other, and everything kind of branched off from there. By the late 19th century, theater had become a part of every society, pretty much, though it was not a very highly respected profession, basically the lowest of the low employed. The unemployed were less than human, but basically the lowest of the low would have been sex workers. And then right above that and just barely would have been actors. And the version of theater present by this stage had traditions in the theaters of ancient Greece, Commedia dell'arte, and also within the literary developments brought forward by the likes of playwrights like William Shakespeare. Acting of this era, which is the direct descendant of film acting, was very big and very expressive and very declamatory. While this was to, of course, help the actors be seen by those seated far away, there was also a prevailing theory at the time that performing had to be grandiose. Acting like you were just a person was just life, and people didn't really have any interest in that. They wanted to see something beyond themselves. To get these big, grandiose performances, there were even books of poses and hand gestures published for actors to learn and mimic to convey their quote-unquote emotions on the stage. Each pose or hand gesture had a universal meaning, so if you knew, you know, if 
if the audience knew to expect one thing to mean happy or upset or whatever, all the actors would be doing more or less that same pose. Once film entered the picture, no pun intended, and began to move away from solely the actualities of the Lumieres in favor of scripted stories, many theater actors were recruited to try their hand on the silver screen. Early films, of course, were shot like theater productions, with the full bodies of actors being on screen pretty much at all times. Because of this, and also the lack of sensitivity of early film stocks, stage actors brought their larger-than-life acting styles with them. The poses were familiar to audiences, so even though there was no sound, the people who were familiar with theater would know what poses meant what, so it kind of worked as a Rosetta Stone of, of sorts. And... Honestly, up until about the 40s, 1950s, a lot of this larger than life performing would remain the norm. Even when sound entered the picture, they just kind of toned down the arms. And it's probably why if you've ever watched an old film and kind of laughed when they get a little bit melodramatic and had a little bit of trouble like relating to characters in black and white films, this might be why. The acting or the writing isn't inherently bad by their modern standards, the actor was merely just employing ways of theatrical performance as they'd always done. There were exceptions to this rule, Lillian Gish, for example, but this was the vast majority of performances in the silent era and even into the early days of the talkies. They were a little bit big and at times exaggerated. It's just what was done. Also, it's not to say that the actors were before other methods appeared were bad at their crafts. They were good for what was considered good at the time. As the camera pushed in to show the intricacies of a performer's face, new acting techniques had to develop out of necessity. You couldn't be super dramatic like that big on a screen. All of the time, it would be exhausting. Film was a more intimate medium, and the need to gesture to the back row was no longer needed when the performance was going to be projected onto a 30-foot screen. So, like I said, actors had to learn to scale back their performances and find meaning within their performances in a new manner. Lucky for them, there was an acting revolution that was happening over in Russia at this time, and this revolution would lead to what has become known as method acting, which had been around for decades by the time it became popular in the United States, but would take until about the 1950s to have a major effect on screen acting. So to figure out how that happened, we're going to step back in time a little bit. The method, as we know it today, was originally developed by Konstantin Stanislavsky, a Russian character actor and director who had come up with this process for not only his own acting career, but also for when he directed. He, of course, had been taught the posing methods throughout his career and absolutely hated it. Stanislavski wanted a set of guidelines that would yield a more authentic performance, one that started with looking at the script, analyzing the actions and words, and putting the focus on the interaction of the actor. Essentially, he wanted to live as the character within his scenes and be a little bit less tied to the script. While this desire to make an emotional connection with a character one is playing might seem quite obvious now, it wasn't the case at the time. Before the 20th century, the inner emotional training of actors was developed by watching older, more experienced performers and learning the movements through osmosis. But the creation of an emotional truth on stage was basically just, you just had to imitate the people who came before. If they were doing that, that meant they were portraying feeling, right? Because everyone said that they felt these things when they watched these people. So it was very much a if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. 
Stanislavski's method was born out of an 18-hour conversation that took place on June 22, 1897, between Stanislavski and theater director Vladimir Nemirovich, during which time the two laid out a detailed format of a new rehearsal process for the Moscow Art Theater. Included were details on how to get into the psyche of a character or how they thought they might be able to do that, how to use your body to tell a character's truth, and the like. The two began implementing this new method at the Moscow Art Theater, and rehearsals would start with hours of actors being asked questions by Stanislavski about the script and the characters these actors were attempting to embody. He called what he was looking for the, quote, empirical truth. If he managed to find this, then no longer would an actor just say lines while moving in choreographed gestures to give a performance. The actor in a scene would exist in a similar manner to how a real person might, with the actors constantly asking themselves, why am I saying this? And of course, who doesn't love that cliched? What is my motivation? Stanislavski's actors eventually got to let go of just reciting a script word for word, and in exchange, they trusted their own emotional experience to guide their performance. The result was a more inward-looking, internal, often improvisational approach to acting in those early days. By 1909, Stanislavski came out with his first formal draft of his method of acting. In a time where psychology was just beginning to be seen as a science, it was actually a very psychological way to approach acting and living in their metaphorical skin in a moment. And to do that, you had to psychoanalyze them. I don't think that term existed back then, but that's essentially kind of what they're doing. The steps of the method at this stage were such. There was the preparation stage in which the actor trains the voice and body. I thought that would have been second. Apparently in this early method, it was first. Then they have to study the part in which the actor studies the script and finds their quote unquote motivation for their character and their character's role within the bigger picture, aka the script. They're studying the script. And finally, truth in which the actor feels as though they've embodied the character fully and become them during a scene. And for the more crazy method actors between the scenes as well. Essentially, an actor should be feeling as though what is happening in a play and eventually film is actually happening to them because they are the character. It's very, it's very in the head. One thing Stanislavski tried out to reach the empirical truth was something called sense or emotional memory, which required performers to pull emotional things from their own lives in order to get to the truth of their character. For example, you may have never been in peril on a spaceship, but maybe you've been on a really turbulent plane ride. So if you can pull up the emotion you felt bucking in the sky on the plane to match for the imagined space danger, then that's using sense memory. You've never experienced being on a spaceship, but you have experienced being on a plane. This, you know, there's darker versions of that, which I um, avoided putting in. Um... <laughs> But, you know, this kind of this kind of thing was eventually taken out of Stanislavski's official method because several of his actors actually had breakdowns because they got a little too into it. Another method Stanislavski experimented with was known as emotion through action. This was achieved through creating a world in which an actor can embody their character just through the environments they find themselves in. If given a realistic set of guidelines in which to embody this world, then the actor's emotion will be real. So that's more of an external stimuli versus an internal one. After developing the method for over a decade, the MAT traveled the world, including a leg in the United States in 1923, starting with a five-month run in New York City. 
Two of Stanislavski's protégés decided to stay in the city after this and opened the American Laboratory Theater in New York that same year. Early notable students of theirs included Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, who would be the two founders of the major method acting style that would eventually change Hollywood. Stanislavski's ideas were all ultimately published in English for the first time in 1936 in the book An Actor Prepares. You can still find this book at Barnes and Nobles all over the city of Los Angeles. Adler and Strasberg, along with Cheryl Crawford and Harold Clerman, would go on from the American Laboratory Theater to found the group theater in 1931, which adopted a lot of Stanislavski's principles. The group theater only lasted about a decade, which was the result of several of the members all having different ideas on how to capture a great performance. Lee Strasberg, best known for running the actor studio eventually, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and is also still around today, that school is still around, coined his acting technique, The Method. In his version of acting, you had to literally become your character. It's only through the experiencing or re-experiencing of emotions within the fiction of the story that you can truly embody a character. Strasberg's method was also big on sense memory. Stella Adler concurred that you had to inhabit your character's experience, but without that nerve-wracking sense memory. She believed that your emotional truth should come from the physical actions of the character. If your character is a dancer, then the actor needs to learn to dance. If they're a carpenter, they need to learn woodworking. If they're a sailor, they need to learn how to sail, and so on. It's through the implementation of this physicality that will bring an actor to emotional truth. Adler's method also relied heavily on the playwright or screenwriter and the world that he or she created for the actors. Acting was more than just words on a page, but the writer gives you the actor, the world, and it's up to you to bring it to life from there. Very subtle distinctions, but they are quite different. Another acting version that came out of this, though a little bit later on worth knowing, is Sanford Miser's version. Miser's philosophy was that, quote, acting is behaving truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Again, sounds like a a, a no-brainer, but this was revolutionary stuff at this time. The art of acting to Miser comes from the doing, like Adler, and there's an objective in each and every scene for the character, and the actor needs to be aware of that when giving their performance. This approach puts a lot on the imagination of the actor to create a truthful experience, but unlike sense memory, you do not use your own life experiences to do this. It's essentially the most intense make-believe you've ever believed. This style is a mix of the method and classical styles, which we'll get into a little bit later on. So with all that in mind, let's hop back to the early 30s when sound entered the pictures. This led to a new generation of actors from the stage entering the film industry, which meant some of these new actors had at least somewhat trained in early versions of the method, or the American version of it, rather. It would, however, take about another decade, almost two, for these new systems of acting to really take hold in the film industry. One major thing that led to this happening was when Strasberg, alongside former group theater founder Cheryl Crawford and director Elia Kazan, formed the Actor Studio in 1947. The point of the Actor Studio was to allow a place for actors to experiment with acting amongst their peers and was an invite-only situation and you had to audition to get in as well. The Actors Studio quickly became a coveted invite in the New York acting circles and formal acting classes began being taught there in 1949. 
The first well-known method actor to reach the silver screen in a big way didn't come from the actor's studio, however, but from Stella Adler's school of acting. Lee Strasberg would attempt to take credit for this performance, which the actor vehemently denied. This feat was achieved by Marlon Brando in 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, which was directed by Elia Kazan, whom had left the actor's studio for Tinseltown by this point. Turned out that method acting, even in its different forms, was a pretty good match for the intimate nature of the silver screen. Soon actors like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, Strasberg and Adler students respectively, would also bring their method acting to the screen, cementing its place within film. Who is the actual founder of The Method, Adler or Strasberg, is up to debate to this day. Another notable acting instructor is Uta Hagen, whose method is probably the close to what modern Western actors do to this day. Hagen created an acting style that was a mixture of the three aforementioned methods and uses sense memory, improvisation, bodywork, and daydreaming to achieve the perfect performance. Hagen received her inspiration from director Harold Clerman, who, if you remember from a couple minutes ago, was also a member of the original group theater. I know I've thrown a lot of names at you so far today. Another major method that doesn't stem from Stanislavski is the classical school of acting, which focuses on the text and the precision of performance and has been around since the days of Thespis. The modern approach to classical style comes from the British tradition of Shakespearean performance and relies on the script itself rather than the actor's own emotional story. What's your motivation? It's right there on the page. As such, a classically trained actor's performance is action-oriented, caring more about what they are doing in the scene rather than what they are feeling. They're also precise with little room for improvisation. We most often associate classical acting with Shakespeare. You can't really freestyle Shakespeare. And classical styles also treat the playwright or screenwriter's text as something sacred and unchangeable. That same reverence is brought to the cinema with this technique. But that's not to suggest that a classically trained actor can't breathe emotional life into a role. It's just that their baseline for the character will always come from the words of the script. As the years went on and more and more method actors entered the ranks of Hollywood cinema, they inevitably collided with those classically trained actors that still dominated the industry at this time. One example of two different actors from two different schools clashing as to how to get into a role occurred famously during the shooting of the 1976 film Marathon Man, which saw seasoned classical actor Laurence Olivier getting huffy with seasoned method actor Dustin Hoffman. In one scene, for example, Hoffman's character hadn't slept for three days, so naturally, Hoffman stayed up for three days. Olivier's response to Hoffman upon hearing him brag about this feat was, quote, Dustin, why don't you just try acting? I first heard that story in film school like 12 years ago, and it's still my favorite or one of my favorites. Several contemporary students of the method have, of course, continued in Hoffman's tradition of the method, with some losing an insane amount of weight for a role, Christian Bale and the Machinist, or gaining it, Christian Bale and Vice, or never breaking character on or off set during production, like Christian Bale in The Dark Knight. There's a uh, story about um, an actor trying to talk to him between scenes and he kept telling him like I think they were they're both Welsh actors um, working on on the Dark Knight or one of the Dark Knight movies. And he tried to like talk to him in between in between setups. And (laughs) the guy's like, oh, I'm from such and such a place in Wales. Where are you from? And he went Gotham. Like, yeah, it's 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 a little pretentious in my opinion. But, you know, to each their own. 
Even the ones that are super duper method, not all contemporary actors like to be called method actors, as the term has become a bit cliched and, you know, the more intense ones have kind of ruined that term for the others. And many more of them will actually claim that they're actually more classically trained, but that just makes them sound less difficult for directors. And frankly... Modern acting is a pretty decent mix of both for for most performers. It's it's not a either or situation so much anymore. All as the years have gone by, everything's kind of mixed together in the washing machine of performance. It's a horrific metaphor, but I tried to come up with that on the fly. I don't think it worked. So that's how acting has developed as an art form. So now let's look into ways an actor might prepare for a role. The tricky part with trying to lay this out, of course, is nailing down an immersive step-by-step as to how an actor preps a park. And it's also different. Every single one of them's gonna do it different. And that's gonna depend on the person, where they trained, how they trained, their creative process, what kind of role it is, etc. What I've outlined here is what I think is a pretty basic template of how an actor might prepare for a role. So after getting the part, more often than not, the first thing an actor will do is read and analyze the script. This involves understanding the plot, the characters, not necessarily just their own, and the story's themes and motifs. Actors will often create a character breakdown, which is a detailed analysis of their character's traits, motivations, and relationships. This will come in handy, especially during shooting, as films more often than not are shot out of order, and the actor will need to have a reference point for themselves to more easily locate where they are in a character's journey. For example, if an actor is playing Ebenezer Scrooge and they shot the end of the movie where he becomes a good guy and, you know, yay, Tiny Tim, all happy. And then, you know, like three days later, they shoot the beginning of the movie. You want to make sure the actor wants to make sure he's an a-hole in that scene because that's where it's going to be when the film gets assembled. But, you know, linearly speaking, it's, you know, a little bit it's a puzzle. So having that character breakdown will be very helpful in making sure they're performing, you know, where they need to be. Depending on the role actors may need to to bring that character to life, actors often research the role's historical or cultural context if needed and explore their physical and emotional characteristics. This might involve studying the character's profession, personality traits, and backstory. Depending on the role, actors may need to develop specific physical or vocal techniques to convey their character's emotions and personality. This might involve taking on a different accent, moving your body differently, or a slightly different vocal intonation to bring authenticity to the performance. Typically, if a part involves a different accent on a film with a budget, they'll probably get an accent coach to help this process along. While it's becoming more difficult to do before shooting, rehearsing with other actors is an essential part of preparing for a role as it allows actors to develop their chemistry and timing with other performers. This is especially crucial if you've never worked together before. In film, this is probably one or two days if you're lucky. Most often it occurs in between setups of shots on set, while the actors and director are working out blocking. Speaking of the director, as an actor, you're going to be working closely with the director, which is a crucial part of bringing this character to life. While the actors get much of the public's love, the actor in the modern sense is supposed to be there to serve the director's vision. To do this, actors will often have discussions with the director to gain insights into said vision and make adjustments to their performance as needed. Does this always happen smoothly? No, of course not. But in a perfect world, it's a give and take situation. 
Throughout filming, actors will continue to refine and adjust their performances based on feedback from the director and the performances of their fellow actors. After a film wraps, an actor may be required to come back in for something called ADR, which is short for automatic dialogue replacement. This will be done to re-record a line that might not have been cleanly recorded on set or a line that needs to be added for clarity or even voiceovers. That's the most kind of major thing. They might also be brought in for publicity stuff, though sometimes that happens before and or during. But that's the that's the big one for post. And then once a film releases, the actors tend to be, you know, the big faces of the film. They're on the posters. You know, they're, you know, front and center in the trailers. You're not looking at well, some people do, but you're not really paying attention to the lighting in a trailer of a film. What are the actors doing and why am I interested in that? So that's why they will be typically be the one set out. The director usually comes as well to promote a film. This includes them doing press junkets, late night show appearances and the like. And if all of that goes well, the film will be a big ol' hit. And then on to the next, hopefully. So with that in mind, what do you need to do to get to that point? When it comes to the education needed to become an actor, acting is a weird boy. Sometimes you start as a child actor with minimal training and pick it up as you go. Sometimes people just get plucked off the street in a right place, right time scenario, and then they get trained kind of on the job as well. And sometimes you train for years and years and years and never get a job. There's no real roadmap for becoming an actor like there is for the others, because this one relies not only on your skills, but your physical appearance, age, gender, etc. That being said, there are things you can do to make yourself be the best you can possibly be. Acting requires a wide range of skills, including the ability to memorize lines, express emotions convincingly, and work collaboratively with other performers. Taking acting classes or improv classes are a great way to dip your toe into those experiences. If you want a four-year degree, many universities have prestigious acting programs like NYU, Northwestern, and Yale. Of course, attending those schools is tricky because money and uh, prestige, but while they do leave their recent alums in hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, they typically do also leave there with pretty good industry connections, which is also a really nice thing to have. Once you have some experience and or education, you'll need to start building your acting resume by auditioning. You'll want to go look into theater productions or student films or other low budget projects, basically anything you can get an audition for without needing an agent. Also, you got to build credits because you're going to have your headshot. You know, on the back of headshots, there's a resume on the back which shows like your credits and your acting classes and your skills and all of that. And you want there's something to actually be on the back there. Otherwise, they're going to be a little bit shifty in hiring you because you're not you're not practiced. So you're not going to be making a lot of money. It's the downside of this. It's why everybody's a waiter, you know, jokingly. It's because these early days, if you can get acting work, they're very likely not going to be paid. Or if they do, it's not it's not going to be enough to cover rent most of the time. So what this does do is it helps you build your skills. You gain exposure and you're going to make those industry connections. There are several websites actors can join to find these open call type auditions. If all of that goes well and you continue to gain credits and get work, you're going to want to try and get some form of representation, which will open even more doors. Truthfully, other than becoming a big old movie star, which, you know, doesn't really exist anymore, but that's a conversation for another time. This step may be the trickiest of all to achieve because it involves the most luck. 
There's no real tried and true way to get an agent, just a series of right places and right times. And eventually maybe someone will snag you. So what is the appeal of having an agent? Agents will be able to find actors auditions and eventually negotiate contracts for them. They will also be able to get you into even bigger audition rooms for bigger parts, which leads us to auditions, which are the job interviews of the acting world. Auditions give you the opportunity to showcase your skills to the casting director, and if you get far enough in the process, the producers and directors, and hopefully ultimately land roles. You're going to attend a lot of auditions and face a lot of rejection before you find success. So if that's something you're not particularly, you know, comfortable with facing, maybe, maybe not do this job. And while doing all of this, you'll be networking your booty off. It is an important part of the entire entertainment industry, and it can help you make the connections with people who will get you jobs. Fight every introverted thought in your head and start building relationships and joining groups that will help you get cast. Keep in mind that the path to success in acting can be long and challenging and often unfulfilling, and there is no single quote-unquote right way to become an actor. If you want to be a successful actor, know that you will be training in that craft for your entire life, and very, very few will ever reach the pinnacle of success. So that's acting as an art form in a nutshell. From the ancient days to the silver screen, actors have been around for over two millennia, breathing life into stories once contained to the page, making them three-dimensional, living, breathing experiences. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got buy me a coffee. I'm about to make my coffee after I finish recording this episode because I woke up very early because I'm supposed to get a haircut today and it's my friend's birthday. So I am, if I talked a little fast, that was probably why. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we are covering the greatest films that were never made. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Music.